Hello and welcome to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast from the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. I am Arthur Coldwells. Well, tis the season to be jolly and all that. So we thought in the first segment this week, we'd bring you a brief gift guide. Associate Editor TJ Adams and I discussed several suggestions for that hard-to-buy-for motorcycle enthusiast that you care for. Alternatively, if you hear of something you fancy and you figure you're on Santa's nice list, then maybe drop a little hint in the right place and make his job a little easier. The second segment is just plain cool. Well, to be more specific, Jeff Buchanan chats with Mert Loyal about the king of cool, Steve McQueen. That's a little cryptic, so to be more specific, it was exactly 50 years ago that, arguably, the most popular motorcycle movie ever made was released, on any Sunday. If you haven't seen it, the movie featured Mert Loyal, Malcolm Smith, and of course Steve McQueen as the central cast of characters. As a callow youth of just 13, I remember seeing the film for the first time, and it not only captivated me, it launched me on the two-wheel path that has been a lifetime obsession. (laughs) And it wasn't just me. The film launched a love of motorcycling in literally tens of thousands of riders, and amazingly, or perhaps not amazingly, Bruce Brown's iconic work has somehow endured, decade after decade, inspiring each new generation of riders as they came along. Now, 50 years later, Bruce Brown Films has released a remastered and digitally enhanced edition of On Any Sunday. Fully restored, colour corrected, and with PCM 5.1 digital sound, it is now possible to relive the original like never before. There are some theatrical releases, so if you're lucky enough to find one near you, needless to say, I highly recommend you go see it. As I mentioned, Jeff Buchanan, one of the founders of Ultimate Motorcycling, chatted to Mert Loyal about his part, his relationship with Steve McQueen, and how the movie came about. The interview is actually the basis for Jeff's full story appearing in Roadrunner Motorcycle Touring and Travel magazine. As one of the few printed motorcycle magazines left in the US, I hope you get your hands on a copy to check it out. There's a subscription link in the show notes below as well. This was a really fun episode to make. I greatly enjoyed listening to Jeff and Mert. I hope you do too. Let's go. We're talking about Christmas. Yeah, hey, holidays. Yes, we are. <laughs> yeah, this will be fun. So we're going to talk about uh, Christmas gifts. Maybe big gifts and also kind of stocking stuffer type stuff. Yeah, just different ideas. I mean, lots of people who are interested in motorcycles don't necessarily want a T-shirt. <laughs> Which just tends to be what happens from what sort of partners, etc. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, my first gift um, idea is for communicators. These are helmet communicators. And the one that we've been using for a long time, for many years actually, is the Sena or the Sena, S-E-N-A. It's been kind of interesting because we've used them across multiple different devices. I mean, Sena um, provide... Uh, cameras. Um, These are all helmet mounted devices. The ones that we've been using lately are the uh, slim profile ones. It's actually the SF range and they are very discreetly mounted on the on the helmet and uh, they're really good. I mean they're excellent to talk to other people, other riders. 
Sounds uh, great, awesome. Great to hook up to your phone and listen to um, music or, or what have you, um, or map directions. So they're great. The big announcement, or not a big announcement, but, but sort of of the latest version, Senna have come up with premium sound uh, earpieces. These are speakers made by Harman Kardon. So I haven't actually tried them, but they do claim it's better. The thing that always attracted me to Senna was the volume and the, and the, the sound quality. So I was able to have phone conversations if necessary, but listen to music, use intercoms at freeway type speeds. So their, their audio has always been pretty good. So if they've, they feel like they've stepped up the game a bit uh, using Harman Kardon equipment, really more power to them. Mm. It's a great gift because it's suitable for people who are doing business as well as people who are just socialising, going out for fun rides. And I've used Sinner. I think they're a fantastic product. Good. So good. Good practical gift. Well, excellent. Yeah, in terms of price, um, something like the low-profile SF1, just the Bluetooth communication system, uh, where you can hook up to you know one other uh, user, is one hundred and thirty-nine dollars. Wow. So it's not, they're not super cheap, but it's, it's inexpensive and it works really well. Fantastic. That sounds good. Okay. I also have a practical gift to recommend. This is called the Fantic X8 Apex Tire Inflator. Bit of a long name, but basically it's a portable tire inflator. This is going to be really handy for anybody who's interested in motorcycles or okay. ADVs or any, any vehicles really. Um, you know, the ideal, the, the, the big bonus is that you can keep it with you all the time. If you go on your motorcycle, you can just chuck it in your panniers. That, that's the, the big benefit of having something that's uh, pretty small. So this weighs in at pound thirteen ounces. So that's pretty small. Um, so it's not a compressed air inflator then. It's, it, it's something that you actually plug in. Is it battery operated or, or is it just those little compressed air capsules? It's got a battery. It's a battery charge air inflator so you just have to make sure you've got it topped up before you go out it can top your tires up to 150 psi which is the most anybody's likely to need <laughs> i'd say so <laughs> <laughs> in fact jonathan who did the test i can link this to uh, an article on the ultimate motorcycling website he even topped up his uh, truck tires i think <laughs> um, and he does say here it's a little bit loud but hey that's not a problem as long as you're not up at six in the morning annoying the neighbours. Anyway, I just think it's a, a good size. It's a nice gift and it's definitely going to be useful. Cool. How, how much is it? That comes in at around the $80 mark. It's actually on Kickstarter. And again, I'll put the link into the show notes. And it's called the Fantic X8 Apex. So what else are you thinking that a motorcyclist would like for Christmas, Arthur? Well... Uh, this is a little bit more of a stocking stuffer. Um, it's actually a, a book, Quarto Moto Books, uh, publish various various different motorcycle themed books. Right. Actually, they do lots of different things, but but among them, they do motorcycle themed books. This one is the Harley Davidson Source Book. It's all the milestone production models since 1903. Wow! Since when they started, it's a hardcover book, so it's a coffee table. Um, type of book. It's uh, beautifully done. The hardcover copy uh, you can buy off Amazon. We'll put the link in the show notes. You can buy it off Amazon for $42.68. So it, it, it's not a cheap book. It's not as if you're buying a paperback, but you're buying a beautiful hardbound hardcover book that basically is everything Harley Davidson. 
great gift for, great gift for Christmas. Yes, yeah, that's a good idea. How about you? What have you got? Well, again, um, a good price, and I can't believe this is so inexpensive. Um, it's a motorcycle magnetic tank purse, as in handbag. Now, there's a company called Sport Bike Chic, run by a lovely lady called Shauna. She's the founder, and this is her company. And um, I had a chat with her the other day for our podcast. That's not why I'm mentioning this. This is something I would actually like for Christmas. <laughs> That's why I'm mentioning it. <laughs> okay. Duly um, noted. <laughs> so, normally selling at $104, this is actually on offer for the holidays at around $55. It's um, a purse with a bit of a difference, so it looks completely normal and sociably acceptable when you're not on a motorcycle. It's got a cross-body strap, so you know you can wear it with your day clothes to work or socialising. Um, but it's actually got hidden magnets within it, and you pull a couple of flaps open, and it adheres to your motorcycle tank. Oh, that's a great idea. So you just unclip the strap and stick that in as well, and you've got a tank bag. It's awesome, so you can put, okay. you know, it's got lots of compartments in there for cards and your telephone. Um, yeah. It's water resistant, so, you know, everything won't get messed up if you get caught in the rain or what have you when you're, you're on your motorbike. But it's really versatile, and it's a fantastic design. It's actually trademarked by Sport Bike Chic. And uh, you can go onto the website, and as I say, at the moment, they're just half price, so that is a bargain. And very useful and just attractive as well it's about eight by nine inches so it's not huge as i say you can just use it as your daily purse and what was the price again it's uh, 55 dollars at the moment thereabouts 55 bucks that's mm. awesome what a cool idea yeah shauna's a, a real rider i remember remember that from the interview that you did so yes. it's obviously one of the first things that she came up with she's kind of like uh, i ride a lot and i've got to have somewhere to put my purse yes quite found the uh yeah. the missing yeah great idea missing uh, item on the marketplace, uh, something that she, she needed, and I think lots of ladies will find really useful. I mean, if, if you're a pillion or if you're a rider or actually even if you're, you're not on a motorcycle, you can still use this. It's fantastic. Cool. Okay. So what else have you got for us? <laughs> okay, for this next one, this is not a cheap product. Um, but having said that, it's excellent. I've used it a lot myself. Um, I use it all the time. It's it's actually a piece of safety equipment, and I know everyone's going to yawn and go oh, safety equipment. <laughs> no, this is uh, this is the Dainese D Air Smart Jacket, and essentially it's a it's a waistcoat, a vest, if you like. In other words, it's just a sleeveless uh, jacket that can either be worn underneath a conventional jacket, or it could be worn just on its own. It's six hundred ninety nine ninety five. In other words, it's seven hundred bucks. Okay, so that's more of a main present. It is definitely a main present. It's also fairly large. This is not a stocking stuffer, but for seven hundred bucks, if you're giving this gift to you know your other half or your boyfriend girlfriend, I mean it's gender generic, so um, it doesn't matter. It can go under any jacket. It means that you don't have to completely re-outfit all of your jackets or everything else if you want the safety of an airbag jacket. Mm, that's really useful because I've actually got jackets for the summer and jackets for the winter and that would cover both. Exactly. Just wear it underneath. So you can either wear it underneath the, an existing jacket or you can just wear it on its own. But either way, you have the safety of airbag technology. Or I guess a race suit or something if you're getting completely exactly. suited up. Exactly. So it's really good. Yeah, safety first. Well, I'm going to uh, mention this gift, which I think is absolutely amazing. It's called Backmate. This is 
quite a reasonable price. I'll tell you why in a moment, because again, it's not that I've been looking for holiday sales, but this is actually on sale as well currently. So um, a racing rider called Eric Bostrom. Which Our think... friend Eric Bostrom. <laughs> awesome. Very famous. Everybody's heard of him. Spent... Awesome rider, awesome human being. Yes, yes. He's a lovely guy. Lovely, lovely man. And he spent 25 years racing motorcycles and winning multiple championships, but unfortunately suffered traumatic spine injuries. And he, uh, after much research, had put, has put together this product called Backmate. And basically it's a massager, but it deals with nerve pain. Okay, so this is something that you can set up in a door jam and it's essentially a way of sort of self-massaging your back, but you can really target certain parts of the back. Yes, that's right. It's not vibrating or anything. You put it in and you can touch actual spots that relieve nerve pain. It's, it's one of those products that had, has had a lot of thought and research go into it. Um, and for a, actually, it's very inexpensive and obviously you can share it with friends and family so if you if you feel like sorting your nerve pain and your back out for yourself you could buy this as a gift for your <laughs> friends or family so yes you fit it into the door jam and you adjust it just to apply pressure points to certain areas on your back so it's aimed at long-term health it's not a quick fix so if you just generally got aches and pains sore back from sitting at a desk or if you've had injuries, this is absolutely fantastic. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's been so useful to me. Now, as I say, it's on offer. Normally, it's $149. And currently, for the holiday season, it's $99. So that is Backmate. And again, I'll put the link to the website just down below in the show notes. It's awesome. Excellent. So for the next one, I'm going back to books. <laughs> Not that I'm a particularly bookish guy, but... This has been written by a friend of mine, um, another, another journalist. I've known this guy for 20 years, Peter Jones. He's a real character. He's very funny. He's hilariously funny. He's got a, but, but he's also a great writer. He's yeah. very philosophical. He's a, just a really good dude. He is. I met him, didn't I, when we were at the Barber Museum. Yeah, and, and he wrote a, a book called The Bad Editor, and it's essentially a collection of various columns and untold tales of bad behaviour that he's had published in different magazines over the last couple of decades. It's priced at 1855. So uh, it's it, it's a great read. It's funny, um, a little poignant. It's got some great stuff in it. Yeah, that sounds uh, amazing. Yeah. Sounds like a stocking filler to the price as well. Definitely is. The Bad Editor by Peter Jones. Well, wow. yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to talk about the badass Motor Gear Ultimate All-Weather Motorcycle Cover. So basically, it's a motorcycle cover. Nice. The, comp <laughs> the company is badass. Okay. <laughs> Great name. Few um, unique selling points or points of interest. Um, this is actually marked back and front, top, top and back, I mean. Okay. <laughs> I've never put a motorcycle cover on upside down, but I have put it on back to front. So <laughs> this is marked clearly, so that if you're struggling well on your own, you don't have that problem. Uh, it's a good idea to cover your motorcycle up, not only, f you know, if you haven't got a garage or if you're going off to work on your motorcycle and parking in the open because it, it just it just keeps it safe. Um, it's, it's a security thing as well as a weather protection thing. It also, this particularly, what I liked about this one, uh, we tried a few, but this, this badass cover has an underbelly strap. And so you just hook that under and clip it. It's not going to blow away. It's not a case of just, you know... It's got elastication and that's going to hold it around the, the wheels and tyres. It does actually strap right underneath. 
and um, you can pack it away into a, a reasonable little bag that it comes with so as I say if you're commuting and taking it with you that's really useful and we have tested this so I can put a link to an article on ultimate mode cycling for this cover and that comes in at it's around $55 for the, the small going up to about $85 for the large size so I think that's a really nice gift it's always going to be useful they do ADV covers as well, but as I say, you can cover all sorts of little vehicles, etc. Once you've got a cover like that. Okay, yeah, that's uh, it. Sounds great. Motorcycle covers always a good thing. So for my final gift, this is definitely in terms of size. It is just a stocking stuffer. Um, it is the Kaizen Electronics Pathblazer um, Headlight Modulator. Well, that's a long title. <laughs> it's a long title. But essentially for 130 bucks, this is a small box that plugs into, and, it, and they are sort of model specific because obviously there are different connectors. But uh, we actually use this on our Project Yamaha uh, 700 Tenere. Uh, machine but the basically as a modulator it's an electronic small electronics box that makes your headlight pulse and i think we've all kind of seen these on on motorcycles it is essentially much safer than a you know a neon vest or you know keeping your headlight on or what have you yeah it just gets a bit of extra attention exactly so if you're a little bit uh, if you're a bit concerned about you know people pulling out in front of you or, or you know other traffic seeing you a headlight modulator is proven to be the most noticeable thing that you can have so um anyway 130 bucks yeah. it's yours that's practical that's a good one now i'm going to speak about a girl type gift <laughs> because i'm a girl so i've uh, been wearing miss moto leggings for some time actually um i had those bought for me as a gift um some years ago and then more recently i've had the dungarees as they call them which is a bib and brace sort of an overalls situation now that's not normally my style and so that might seem a, a bit off the wall but um once i tried them on they are so comfortable they don't have that gripping around the waist thing which lots of girls hate myself included and they don't sort of ride down you know they don't leave a gap when you got your jacket on and you're leaning forward so i've been really pleased with them they've got a big pocket in the front where the bib is which is zippered up so nothing falls out and you can put your phone in there and it's not sort of getting involved with your lady's chest area <laughs> which happens sometimes when you stuff your phone in in your jacket pocket it can feel really tight and uncomfortable depending so um i've really enjoyed them they're very comfortable very safe um Kevlar rated, I think it's rate AA abrasion, something like that. They're, they're one of the top rated Kevlar items of um, motorcycle gear. And they have knee pads and pockets for hip pads as well. They have a side zip, so they are easy to get in and out of. And all sorts of little extras that they've, they've obviously been designed with the women in mind because they have belt loops, just uh, things that make them a, a, a good fit for ladies. So they're sort of the main present price. $269 currently and you can get them from MissMoto.com. It's an Australian company but they also um, supply and uh, deliver here in the States uh, and I think they're absolutely fantastic and uh, Miss Moto do, they actually do um, have other gear on their website from other brands and so I'm just going to give a shout out to the Joe Rocket Heartbreaker boots which I've worn for a long time and I absolutely love so if you're thinking of boots for your lady friend, 
Um, they have a little wedge hidden within them which gives you an extra couple of inches. I think it's about two and a half inches actually. Those are $289 and they come part way up your calf so they're not ankle boots and they have quite a lot of give in them. They have a sort of stretch panel in the front so they can get around if, you, if you're quite muscly on the calf area. Anyway, I think those are also fantastic. So that's a shout out for the bib and brace from Miss Moto and the Joe Rocket Heartbreaker boots. Okay, well that's awesome. So I think that's all of our gifts for the 2021 Christmas season, is that Hopefully, correct? Hopefully, yes. I, I think there's a variety of ideas there at least. Hopefully that gives you some alternatives because, you know, when you know somebody's interest is, is motorcycles, um, it's not, not always easy to think of everything that goes with motorcycling. So yep. I think it's a good variety there. Absolutely. <laughs> well, hopefully we've given some ideas to people and I hope everyone has a very happy holidays, no matter how you celebrate it, whether it's Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas or whatever. Hopefully everybody has a really lovely time and we look forward to 2022 being a lot better than 2021. Yes. <laughs> All right. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I'm Jeff Buchanan. Earlier this year, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of On Any Sunday, I interviewed Mert Lawwell for an article that will appear in Roadrunner magazine. In reviewing the recording, I realized there were a lot of interesting bits that fans of the landmark documentary would appreciate hearing especially coming from one of the film stars. Are you sitting in the house, that, the famous house in Tiburon? Sure am. <laughs> <laughs> I've and been here 50 years. I, I know. I just, it's, it's always so remarkable. And one of these days, I will get up there for a visit. You've been very nice about inviting me. I, the idea of visiting the house that I first saw you in and on, on any Sunday, which, Mert, this is, this is why we're talking 50 years ago is when this film came out. Yeah, but at that time, the house was 1,875 square feet. It's now 3,200. Wow, wow. So <laughs> you had quite a, yeah, but it's grown up around you. Yeah, I've, I've, got a whole, I've got a whole guest uh, quarters downstairs I can put you up in. Oh, okay. Hey, by the way, are you riding bikes at all these days? No, I threatened to, but I never seem to have time. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing to not have the time. But it, it really yeah. hit me one day coming down the, I was going on a, a walk and I just thought, I just can't believe that was, that was 50 years ago the film came out, but you guys were shooting in 1970, right? Because you, you yes, won. Yes, yes, that's amazing, isn't it? Because you had the number one plate at the end of 69, so you wore number one in 70, so that's when you filmed, and then the film was released in 71. And I, I just can't That's believe it, that that many years ago, I remember when you and I were talking on the 40th anniversary, you were saying you just couldn't believe that it had been 40 years. And it's just, and I'm doing that myself. Well, actually, what's amazing, to, what's amazing to me now is the film is 50 years old, but people still want to watch it. This I is mean, how often do you see a film that's 50 years old that you want to watch over and over and over? Well, you know that uh, Jerry, who was the distributor, she ended up selling her company to an, an East Coast company. Um, but evidently, from what I understand, on any Sunday, still outsells all motorcycle-related uh, DVDs every year. Oh, I'm sure it does, yeah. To this day, that is just so remarkable. And I remember talking to Bruce about it um, uh, and... Um, talking about the, the staying power of it. And he was saying that there's no way to explain it because the technology is so old, the bikes and everything, um, right. but it, it doesn't matter. And um, 
I told him that I thought a lot of it was had to do with his sincerity as far as his voiceover, the way he delivered his his. Yeah, dialogue. no, no, it was all Bruce's show. I mean, he was he was the star. Well, that was I remember also to recount some of the stuff we did at Bruce's house. I remember you telling me that um, it was all very low key. Just this guy approached you and said, "Would you want to be in the?" And you kind of said, "Yeah, sure, whatever." It 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 it, it didn't. Yeah, he, no way. We were up, up at the. At, we were up at the Sacramento Mile, yeah. and he comes through the infield and he says, hey, I'm going to make a motorcycle movie. Do you want to be in it? And I didn't know him from Adam. That's how tunnel vision I was. Sure. You know, I didn't know anything about The Endless Summer or any of those films. And uh, so I just thought, oh, I was just another guy who wants to make a whole movie. I said, oh, no problem. Sure. And uh, look what it turned into. It just, uh, well, you told me, I remember saying that, that you had no idea that then when it came out, Hey, and it, I think it surprised Bruce as well, um, you know, the popularity of it. And I know that uh, because my father was in Hollywood at the time, and I remember it surprised everyone. Everyone thought, who's going to go see a motorcycle documentary? Who's going to pay money to go see two hours of motorcycles? And it, you know, yeah. the, <laughs> the film just became so popular. Um, but did he travel with you on the road a bit in the, in the van or did he? Oh, just yeah, yeah. He was, he was so paranoid that uh, somebody might accuse him of having a Hollywood movie. So what he did is he drove up here to my house and he jumped in a van with me and we traveled together cross country. So uh, that, I'm, I'm impressed to hear that, that he, he was so interested in being outside of Hollywood, not being perceived that way. So you told me that uh, you were actually getting recognized more now than when the film came out. Is that still true? Oh yeah, for sure. Actually, uh, and a lot of that uh, rec recognition came from the bicycle world. I mean, I could walk down the street in Europe and get recognized, but oh, not really? in America. It, oh, they didn't know who I was here. Wow, that's like Eddie Lawson was telling me that uh, he loved coming to America during his championships because no one knew him. Where anywhere he went in Europe or Japan, he would be mobbed, and he yeah. was so nice to come back to, <laughs> yeah. to America exactly and yeah. go to a store. That's remarkable. I didn't know yeah. that about the mountain bike stuff. That, um, uh, that that's that's really great. Well, I was in the bicycle, uh, the mountain bike bicycle hall of fame before the motorcycle hall of fame. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember you told me the story about you wanted to uh, copyright mountain bike, the, the name mountain bike. Was that is that the way the story goes? Yeah. Well, well I, actually, I uh, there was a, a dealer, a bicycle dealer, that lived just down the street from me. Uh, and he was a motorcycle fan. And I went in there one night because at the time I was myself with partnership with Terry Knight, with Knight Frames, we were making all of the flat track frames for the, all the Harleys. We made the stock ones for the Harley Davidson and we made the aftermarket one with my name on it. And between them, why every motorcycle out there that was a Harley had my frame under it. Wow. You know, that, that happened for a few years. But anyway, so I walk into the bicycle shop and I said, uh, 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 Terry and I were talking about making some BMX frames. And he says, oh, no, you got to make a mountain bike. And I said, I didn't even know what it was. I said, what's a mountain bike? And so he helped me. And uh, we made the first prototype mountain bike. And uh, here we will. Well, there was a picture I saw of you a lot. This is when you were racing. So it would have been in the 70s. Um, and you were on a large frame Schwinn, I think, with big wheels. And you were up on a fire trail somewhere near your place. And I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, no, that was a, that was a pro cruiser. Okay. In fact, I was I was a little ahead of my time actually because what I did is uh, when when uh, Terry and I built those first uh, mountain bikes, so I 
I tried to sell it to dealers as the Lawwell mountain bike. And the dealers all said, oh, nobody rides on the mountain here. You know, I couldn't get any dealers at all. So I changed the name to Pro Cruiser because cruisers were big. Yeah. And then I instantly had dealers every place, even in Hawaii. That's a bit, I remember, and I don't know where I saw this picture, but it was maybe Cycle Magazine or Cycle News. It was a black and white photo and you were standing there posing with it and you were on a fire trail. And I got the impression either I read an article or I thought that you were using that to train, to actually be in shape. Is that, was that, was, did I get that totally wrong? Oh, no, I was just out riding. Dad, well, I, mean, I, I never rode a bicycle to stay in shape. You know, I, oh. I'm not one of the quote, quote, bicycle guys. Okay, <laughs> which is ironic because you're making all this great stuff for mountain bikes. It's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> um, another thing that you told me about before um, uh, when we were with, with Bruce, um, you were saying that the nationals were definitely an important thing to you. But you said that equally, you guys were racing all week long. You were going to fairgrounds and doing um, spot races here and there um, that you were racing. Well, the way that all started was uh, back in the beginning, we would race Ascot in the first part of the year mm -hmm. because Ascot paid 40% of the uh, spectator purse went, uh, spectator money went to the purse. Mm -hmm. So we had uh, good money to race for. But about midway through the season, when the crowd would drop off, why, uh, you know, you, you couldn't make that much money then. So instead of racing every Friday night, we'd all load up and travel east because then you could race every Wednesday night in Chicago, every Thursday night at some local fairgrounds, and again, Friday night at some local fairgrounds. So we'd race four or five times a week then. Yeah, we didn't make any money, you know, $20 here, $20 there, but it added up. Yeah, no. Well, but we think about money today um you know i remember reading a, a, a letter that my mother had sent to my grandmother when they had my brother their first child this is in the early 50s and she was talking about that they were everything was going to be okay because my father had a client that owed them a 25 dollars check and i remember reading okay. this letter and my mom was going 25 dollars in 1954 was a lot of money you know, so when I think back oh, yeah. about that, when, well, it's like that famous line on any Sunday when they talk about you making $50,000 in, in your championship year and ending up with. Right. And I got number one, I got a thousand dollar bonus from Harley. Right. Well, this is the other thing that has always amazed me is you working on your own bikes. Uh, right. You had mechanical help. The one guy was kind of like a co-driver, but you were doing your own bikes. And then you told me you were also doing, was it Mark Brelsford's bikes as well? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. I mean, that, yeah, he that, raced for me for a year during the same time. And, and it got to be so much of a, a workload, I couldn't handle it all. So Jim Bellum stepped in and he took over Mark Brelsford's uh, uh, ride for a while. And, and uh, well, they ended up, they got a number one. So that they did, did well. But I, I just, you know, when I was on the road, I don't know if you know this, I was on the road in 82 with Team Mako. Uh, for Scott Johnson. I was his, his mechanic. And now we were just in a van with a ProTrack trailer. But uh, I remember it was such a big thing when the riders started flying to the races rather than driving. And then now you look at it today, I'm talking about mainly motocross and road racing. Um, you know, just this, the teams behind people and how many riders today that are really great riders don't know, they know, they know about setup, but they, they wouldn't know how to change a tire or take an engine apart. I mean, it was a very different time yeah. back then. When, when I think that... A different world, for sure. 
with it, you were the factory effort for Harley Davidson. And um, has have any young kids ever talked about that? That they're amazed at, from watching on any Sunday that you were wrenching on your own bikes. I don't know that now that nobody ever says anything about it. So I don't know if they notice it or not. And I just wonder back about in those that. days we we didn't make enough money at the racetrack that we could have hired a mechanic. So we had to do it ourselves. Well, when you say you're racing at Ascot, where were you living then? Well, uh, in the beginning, I lived in Gardena myself. Oh, okay. You know, which is right where the, where the racetrack is. But but then uh, as time went on, why uh, Dudley Perkins was uh, a Harley dealer here in San Francisco. And he would fly down every Friday night just to watch the race. And wow. uh, so we became friends. And at the end of the year, he, he gave me an offer to ride the Harley Davidson. And I said, no way, I'm a BSA guy. I do not want to ride any Harley Davidson. <laughs> but uh, he talked me into doing it. And, and uh, then after I, because he had a mechanic there at the store that would work on the bike during the week. And they would, they would truck the, the, the motorcycle back and forth every week. So I'd race at an Ascot Friday night. And then uh, Bob uh, Wallace was his name. He'd, he'd put it on the, the truck and they'd ship it up to San Francisco and he'd overhaul it all week long. And then the next week they'd, they'd ship it back down and I'd race it again. And, and pretty soon Dudley says, well, you know, he says, you're a mechanic. Why don't you just work on it? I don't have to hire, hire this mechanic. So that, that actually ended up happening. So he gave me a job working on my own motorcycle. That's incredible. Now, I, I didn't realize that. You were riding BSAs before Harleys? I started on BSA and Triumph. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Then after you were with Harley, did you ever race another manufacturer after that? Or was it? No, no. I always stayed with Harley after that. Okay. That, that, I, did, I love these stories about the, the old ways that it, way it was done. You told me that incredible story about your hand when you broke your hand and how McQueen stepped in. Well, what happened was is uh, uh, I was at Daytona early that year, and uh, I blew a rear tire up on the big banking. I so remember. I fell down at 150 miles an hour. I remember seeing the famous well, photo. That why I was, yeah. yeah, I was kind of beat up, you know, all scratched up and everything, and I, I broke a, a bone in my wrist, which I didn't even know it at the time, but. Uh, by the time that I got healthy enough to start racing again, the first race back was Castle Rock, Washington. And uh, that was later in the year. So uh, uh, Jim Rice fell on the first corner of, of the main event. Mm -hmm. And uh, since his bike was on the ground, I had nowhere to go. I hit him and my hand slipped off the handlebar and got caught between the front forks and the frame. Well, that, that smashed it. Well, while, while it was being smashed, my body's still going through the air. So it takes the ulna and puts it over on the other side of the radius, you know, just transpose those two bones. And uh, so going to the hospital that night and the doctor says, when it smashed this badly, he says, there's no way to fix it. He says, I'll, I'll give you some painkillers for tonight. He says, in the morning, I'll come in and I'll fuse you from your knuckles to your elbow. So think about how you want your arm to, to shape. You want it to hook or you want it to uh, clamp or what, what do you want it to look like? And luckily my wife was with me, June was, she said, oh, we, we think we'll go for another opinion. And he says, well, you can, but you're wasting your time. And uh, uh, so that was Castle Rock, Washington. So I got in Cal Rayburn's uh, motorhome and drove down to San Francisco. And by the time we got here, Steve McQueen heard about it. So he called me on the phone. He says, hey, my doctor's in town doing a seminar. You got to take your x-rays up to him. So I took my x-rays up to uh, his room there in, in uh, the Hilton downtown San Francisco. 
And uh, he looked at him just in the motel room light. He says, kid, he says, you got some problems his, here, but uh, I got somebody that's better at this than I am. I want you to come to LA and see this Dr. Uh, uh, Stark. And uh, what was the name, Stark? Uh, at the time, it was Dr. Curlin, who was the LA Rams uh, football doctor at the time. But at any rate, so I come back and I, I get on the phone. I call Steve and I says, oh, he, I mean, uh, uh, yeah. And so uh, I said, he wants to I call, uh, who did I call? I forget now who I called. Anyway, I said, uh, I called Bruce, I think. I says, he wants me to come to uh, LA to see this, this hand doctor. And uh, uh, I said, uh, I had a bad year after falling at Daytona in, in January. And now it's it's like July or April, and I'm just now racing again. I don't have really the money, so I'll just have my local guy do the best that that he can with it. And Steve says, "No way." He says, "You're coming down here," and he sent me the ticket. Had his driver pick me up at the airport, took me right to the hospital, and within hours they were working on it. And uh, the doctor explained to me what he did. He, he he said what he did is he just opened up the back of the hand and he said, "Well, this pile of pieces is going to be this bone. This pile of pieces is going to be that bone." And he just reconstructed it. And it was even uh, shown in a medical journal of how to uh, rebuild smashed hands. And uh, yeah, I'm on the phone. Which, which hand and, was uh, it? So, uh, what's that? Which hand was it, right or left? It is the left hand. So I remember this story is just so amazing. I remember you telling me then um, there were several subsequent trips, weren't there? Well, yes. So what would happen is, is uh, I had uh, five pins put in my arm and my hand. And uh, so I'd have to go down every few weeks and have one of them removed. And so I would stay at Steve McQueen's house mm -hmm. and uh, he, he just put me up there. And uh, uh, not only did he put me up at his house, he took care of the entire bill. I never received any bill at all for all of those operations. That, that's remarkable. You know, he took care that, of all of it. I mean, that says a that's lot a about him and about your friendship. That that's just remarkable. Um, that's yeah. that's quite. I remember you, you showing me your hand, saying you know it's as good as new. That works so. perfect. Still does. Um, yeah. So one funny little tribute here. Sure. Uh, when Steve and I first met, we were doing the filming of, of the beach scene that you saw in the, in the film. Uh huh. So uh, we stayed at Bruce's house down there in Dana Point, mm -hmm. and uh, the two kids they had a, a, a bunk bed, so. Uh, Steve took one bunk and I took the other and, and uh, Steve walked in there and he looked around and he says, don't your kids ever go to the movies? Because he said there was no movie posters. All it was on the wall was posters of myself and Dick Mann and, and all the motorcycle racers. And he said, something's wrong here. You guys got to go to movies. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so. Uh, you mean he was jealous? That's kind of funny. You mean he was jealous because his, he was jealous because his picture wasn't up there? Yeah, exactly. His picture wasn't up there, but all us motorcycle racers were. That's funny. Another thing about McQueen, you told me it was really amazing. Maybe it was during this time. The, the comment, and you can recount this in your own words, about how he said that you were fortunate because no one can ever take your championship away. And did he? Well, yeah, we were, we were out in the driveway talking one day and he walks up and he says, Murdy says, you're the luckiest guy I know. And I looked at myself and I says, what are you talking about? I said, you're the movie star. I'm not lucky. I'm just a motorcycle racer. He says, yeah, but he says, you've got number one. He says, they can never take that away from you. And I'm never number one. I'm only just the actor of whoever it is that I'm trying to portray. That's just amazing. And amazing. it always bothered him that he was never really Steve McQueen. He was, he was the actor that he was trying to be. So that's just interesting. Exactly. When, you, 
when you hear someone like McQueen, who especially today has got such a great reputation, you know, such fame, to, to hear him say something like that. Because I know that I, I heard uh, Bud Eakin say that definitely if he hadn't been a movie star, he would have been a, ra a motorcycle racer. You know, that, that, oh, he uh, was good. Yeah. I, I used to go out with him when he was training and uh, critique his ride. You know, I said, well, you're turning a little late here and a little early over there, you know? Oh, yeah? And he'd say, well, yeah, easy for me to say. <laughs> it, what kind of, yeah. you mean in motocross? You were coaching him with Yeah, that? in motocross, yeah. We go to the motocross track. What, I forgot, Prado Park, I think, was. Where, was where Southern California right or? Yeah, Southern California. Well, there was Saddleback back in that day. Well, man, there were a lot back then, but mainly it was Indian Dunes and Saddleback. Cause I, uh, Indian Dunes. Okay, I was I on the track with them Dunes. one time when I when we both had Elsinore two fifties. I remember being on the track with him and thinking, "Wow, this guy goes this guy goes pretty fast." Um, so he yeah he'd go out there to practice and then I would just critique him and and uh, he says, "Sure, easy for me to say it, but you know he's the one that's trying to do it." <laughs> also, I remember you talking about once the film came out, how many people in your your family didn't really understand what it is that you did. And then after the film came out, suddenly <laughs> it all kind of made sense. I mean, that must have been a big- Well, yeah, they, in the beginning, why they did everything they could to keep me from riding a motorcycle because they were oh, dangerous. Yeah? But my brother came home with one one day and, and that was it. I was addicted to wheels, Yeah. you know, from then on. So even though they were opposed to it, they, as I began to win races in that, why they, they finally came down. In fact, they were uh, in appearance at the, the Sacramento Mile when I won my first national. Uh huh. And uh, that was in, uh, was that, 58. Wow, okay. That, Merck, that was, that was- 68. 60, I was gonna well, 58, say. That was 58. Oh, yeah. come on, really? Merck, that was the year I was no, no, born. That, no, no, that was, because I, I went to LA in the fall of 61. I get my years mixed up here. Oh, well, don't we all? But at any rate, of course, in the end, why well, they turned out to be my biggest fans, of course, and saved all my memorabilia and all of that stuff. They were really fans in the end, but they sure were not in the beginning. That's just remarkable. You think about the impact. Now, I don't know if you remember, but um, you and I were going, <clears throat> I saw you at a, um, an airport. We were on our way to Indianapolis for the, the dealer show or whatever they call that, you know. Um, uh -huh. And we ended up eating at McDonald's. And I remember we said, oh, we're, we're getting on the same flight. So we were coming down the airway to the plane. I don't know if you remember this. This must have been about 05 or 06 probably. And the captain was standing there inside the door, greeting everyone, you know, acting very much the, the, the captain of the plane. And when he saw right. you, he just lost it. And I don't know if you remember this. He went, <laughs> oh my God, are you Mert Lawa? And he became a little kid in his, in his captain's outfit. And he, he couldn't believe I'll it. Be you. I, I'd forgotten that. So, I, so then we're, we're getting to our seats and I said, Merck, does that happen to you a lot? And, and you said, you were very humble and about, oh no, once in a while. But then we got off the plane because the captain was an older guy. Um, but then we got off the plane in Indianapolis and we were going to the taxi stand and all the people who were getting off the planes were going to the Indy show. And there was this whole group of young 20 somethings all tatted up, they were the freestyle guys. And they all just melted uh, at sight of you. And they were all like nudging each other, like, no, you go, you go say hi to him. No, you go say hi to him. And I, the, to see that in, in the, <laughs> yeah. the, the expanse of two hours, to see an older guy be so impressed, shaking your hand. But then at the same time, to see a bunch of guys that were in their early 20s who 
were born a long time after Any Sunday was made. And you see the range of that, of the impact of that film. And, and um, well, you know, I mean, we're, we're sitting here talking because, uh, you know, you were my hero growing up. I think I told you that the year I was racing BMX after On Any Sunday, I chose number seven for my number because that was the number you went to the following year. Correct? Cool, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you said your brother came home with a bike? Is that what you said? Yeah, he actually came home with a little Corgi. A Corgi was a little scooter. It was a 98cc scooter. I remember. That they had for the military. Okay. And the handlebars would fold down and the seat would fold down and they'd hook a parachute on the back and they'd throw it out of the airplane so that the uh, paratroopers <laughs> would have something to ride when they got to the ground. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that was my first. In fact, I'm kind of still looking for one. I'd like to get one. And, oh, really? You know, to have my beginning and end of my program. That's what I started my career on, is, is riding one of those. Then how did you transition to flat track? Did, did you well, uh, my friends had motorcycles, mm -hmm. and, and so I would ride, ride them. And uh, I attracted the attention of the local BSA dealer there in Boise. And uh, he offered me a sponsored ride on a, on a Villers, you know, a, a dot. Sure, yeah. Uh, Two-stroke, a, a 250. And uh, so... Uh, I just had just a natural aptitude to uh, to ride slide sideways and go racing right from the very get go. Wow! And I don't know why I was uh, had that ability because I certainly never learned it from any place. Uh, just all natural, I guess. But I remember talking to you about when we were watching any Sunday together, and um, uh, there was that shot of you sitting up at the end of the straight of a mile and pitching it sideways, and you had this smile on your face, and you just said nothing feels like that, you know, pitching a big bike sideways on, on a mile track going into a corner. And I remember the look at yeah, about 110, 120, something like that. Yeah. But you know, I was as comfortable doing that as I was sitting on my living room sofa. That That's just remarkable. That, that is just, that is just so incredible. I'm trying to think what other notes. But you I don't have. learn that overnight. You know where I really learned to do that? Uh, at the club grounds that I belong to there, the Owyhee Motorcycle Club in Boise. Uh, yeah. We would have field meets. And one of the uh, events that we would have would be what they called the Australian Pursuit. And everybody would line up in a round circle and, uh, and then they'd drop the flag and everybody would take off. And you'd, as soon as you passed the guy in front of you, he was out and you were in. So the last guy going was, of course, the winner. And what that did is it taught you to get into a broad slide and, and go sideways all the way around this 360 degree circle. And, uh, you know, you'd learn to change your balance, you know, a little up or a little down or whatever it took to make the slide work really good. And that's, that's where I learned the art of uh, sliding sideways. Because basically, um, on, on the half mile and the, and the mile, you're not using any brakes. You're, you're bleeding off all the speed on the chassis, on, on, on the, the uh, friction of, of getting sideways, correct? Right. I mean, you know, I, that, that was, uh, well, that's just the way flat trackers were, but it was done for safety in those days because if, if one guy slowed down uh, too quick in, in front of another guy, then they'd run into him. So they said, well, we'll just take the brakes off and then you'll all slow down together. And is, what uh, upset that was when the two strokes came in, you know, they, they, they wouldn't slow down even that good. So they put brakes on them and then they'd slow down too good. So that's when the brake reel uh, became involved. But where that really got difficult was like at Ascot because at Ascot, because of the clay, it was clay that came from the cemetery across the street, and that dirt had so much traction to it that, that uh, uh, you'd get into the corner and you're going so fast 
because of the traction that uh, you'd have to have a special design frame and everything to race at Ascot, then you could race back east. And for Ascot, you'd, you'd load the front end real heavy, you'd move the engine forward in the frame and you'd lower the frame or the engine in the frame. You do all those sort of things to help make it turn. But the hard part was uh, when you get to the corner, because of the traction, you're, you're going too fast. And because there's no brakes, the only way that you could possibly turn it was to reach over and turn the throttle wide open and skid the thing sideways. And that was hard to learn because you're already going too fast. Yeah. To reach over and turn the thing wide open was was a real trip early on. I, I just I, I, the thought of trying to learn how to do that. I mean, because all I've ever done is is track stuff and then motocross. You know, so I, I never actually got that thrill of like being able to just pitch it sideways like that to bleed off the speed. That's just that's just got to be something. Well, um, you go and practice the Australian pursuit, and you'll learn how to do it. That just sounds cool. I've never heard easy. of the Australian pursuit. I like that. Also, when I think about it, <laughs> there back in that time, motocross hadn't really come in yet. It was hair scrambles. So it was basically no, hair it was scrambles. Scrambles and uh, yeah, it was and, just scrambles then. And flat yeah. track. Because I remember you were talking about in the time of on any Sunday compared to now, all of the other disciplines have changed radically as far as the machines, the machinery, and lap times and all that. But you were saying that flat track, half mile and mile, hasn't changed that much as far as speeds and lap times. No, in fact, I set a lot of track records that it took the, the modern day guys years to break. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. But I remember that was really yeah. interesting that because that, you and I were talking about how the trials is completely different from on any Sunday, you know, and motocross and oh, road yeah. racing, but that flat track was still pretty similar. In fact, um, did you enjoy road racing? Well, yes and no. I, I would have been a good road racer, but at the time I was sponsored by Harley Davidson yeah. and uh, Goodyear was our sponsor and I don't like to badmouth anybody, but they were just learning how to make road race tires yeah. and it didn't have it worked out yet. So you either had a hundred percent traction or else you slip and you were on the ground, but you never, you never had the warning. So knowing why. So uh, that made me kind of gun shy and, and yeah. uh, not liking road racing so well. Well, the reason oh, I, I do have five second place finishes at Road Race Nationals. Well, because in, this, this is a series. I, I wish they would bring back something like the Grand Nationals, where you you rode a couple of different disciplines. I think that is such a fantastic format, and I wrote an article uh, about yeah, it, it that, that they should do something like that. It, it could be like motocross and road racing and trials or something like that, and, and to decide. And Every now time. and then, I hear rumblings about people wanting to start that up again. Yeah. But so I didn't know if um, because you seem so adept at, at the flat track, I didn't know if there were if, if you actually enjoyed road racing, because, you know, the strange thing about me, um, I never cared for road racing at all growing up. And in fact, I'll tell you a funny right. story. I, I didn't either, really, but that was part of the factory ride. So I was kind right. of obligated. Um, in 1979, I was the parts manager at Yamaha of Cucamonga and Eddie Lawson was the mechanic. Right. Uh -huh. And so I was the motocross guy and Eddie was the road racer and Eddie was going, you've got to come out to the track. He says, and we were the same size at the time. And he said, listen, put on my leathers, get on my 250 and do some laps. He said, you are going to be hooked. I mean, here's Eddie Lawson inviting me out. And I just said, no, I have no interest. I was only motocross and that was it. <laughs> so then it wasn't yeah. until I was an editor in 2002, I was given uh, the weekend at uh, Freddie Spencer's school. The moment I took to the track, I realized I had made a mistake, that I had a natural ability on pavement that I never had on motocross. 
And I remember next time I saw Eddie Lawson, I said, I wish I had taken you up on that offer back then because I would have gone a whole different direction. I mean, I just, and and to this day, I, I, I will watch MotoGP and World Superbike, but I'll, I'll just, if I, if I happen to catch motocross, I'll watch it, you know? So it's a complete turn. Exactly. Right. I'm tracking with you. What, what race well, you the difference I got to I got to tell you one thing though that's really so different now, and the reason that I didn't turn out to be as good a road racer, like, well, I'm just repeating myself, but I got five second places, including the second place at Daytona, uh, road racing. Yeah. But since I didn't win one, nobody ever knows that I road raced. Well, uh, no. But the deal was is tire technology. Yeah. Uh, the deal was like I told you, the tire, the Goodyears, they didn't know how to make them yet, and so you either had 100% traction or you were on the ground. Yeah, but the tires nowadays even dirt track them. You know, you can slide them around. They give you a lot of warning before they let you down. So it's a lot easier to learn now than it was in those days. Wow, I just can't imagine riding those little tires you had back then, and plus the compounds weren't there. So I, I just can't imagine doing any serious lean angles on that stuff. So, um, oh yeah. <laughs> what what racing do you watch on TV now? Do you watch MotoGP? I watch MotoGP. Yeah, and I watch the motocrosses when they come up. Yeah. I was a kid and I remember hearing about this. Uh, I think I, I certainly told Bruce the story. I don't know if I told you that when on any Sunday came out, Scott and I, we were, I guess we were 13 or something. And um, we bummed a ride into Westwood and we went in and paid for the matinee. And then we just hid in the bathroom between each screening and we stayed until, sure. <laughs> until midnight. We saw on any You're not Sunday, the Lone Ranger. I heard a lot of people did that. Yeah. Uh, well, that's why when I, I when we, we all met at Bruce's and I was so excited to tell Bruce the story, he just kind of went, yeah, a lot of kids did that. He was like, he was so unimpressed. <laughs> but I remember that, that we came out at midnight. Yeah. And I'll tell you a funny story. My friend called his dad and he, his dad came down to pick us up. And his dad was really upset. He was like going, I just can't believe, why would you waste an entire day watching a film over and over and over again? And we were so embarrassed, but, <laughs> but we were just so excited. We, we watched it five times back to back. And I remember just coming out of there and our lives were changed, completely changed after that. It was like coming out of that going, all right, that's it. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna be racers, you know? So. Well, like the old saying, if I had a penny for every time that I heard how how much that movie changed somebody's life or i'd be rich i i I know it's incredible hey by the way do you have any bikes in your garage do you have anything left over from the old days i've got two street trackers uh in the garage right now what about the old race bikes uh no no i sold them i sold the the kr flathead that i got the number one on yeah i sold that for 750 dollars, and i thought oh man what a killing i really because that was obsolete you know yeah i said oh man i made a killing on this deal that worth that thing is worth multiple thousands now. Any idea where it is? Uh, and uh, it's usually being displayed in the uh, museum, uh, Worthington or Pickerton. The what? Oh, AMA museum. Yeah, the AMA museum. I need to get back there. I've never been to that. To, I've never been at. Uh, the first trip that I did with Steve McQueen and his wife Neil. Yeah. Uh, we were coming up to Sonoma to do a, a promotion for Bruce Brown on on any Sunday when it first came out. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, so we, we got to the airport, and as soon as we got inside the airport, he just took off. And I went, well, what the heck's happened to him? Where did he go? And Neil told me, he says, well, he can't stop. If he stops and signs one autograph, he says there's a crowd around him, and he can't ever get onto the airplane. That's, that's incredible. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you my connection to Steve McQueen. 
My father, uh, before he became a director, was an actor in New York, and he and Steve McQueen shared an apartment for a short time. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, and um, he was saying that Steve was always broke, um, and but he always had a nice car, and he was always borrowing money for gas to put in it. And but the, oh, yeah. the <laughs> but the thing he said about McQueen, my dad said he'd go out and maybe do two auditions in a day and think that they, he was doing great. He said Steve would hit the pavement at nine o'clock in the morning. It would not come back to the apartment until five at night. He treated it like a nine to five job. And I remember my dad said uh -huh. he was so impressed by that because everyone thought he was this kind of playboy running around cars. But he said he was really disciplined and knew exactly where he wanted to be with all that. So. And then years yeah, later, yeah, he's very good about that. Uh, my my parents actually introduced Neil to Steve McQueen because uh, Neil was Neil was oh. uh, the wardrobe person on my dad's very first film in Texas, and then later on introduced oh, him yeah. to McQueen. So there's this weird kind of connection there with all that. So small world. Well, Mert, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, and um, hopefully we'll see each other in person before too long. Oh, yeah, I'm sure we'll be around. Okay. Okay, well, Jeff, you take care, eh? All right. Thank you so much, Mert. All right. Bye. So long.